Chapter 13 Milk The avenue, potholed and scored with the marks of tractor tires, wound its way through a dank woodland of rhododendron and laurel, both of which had fared remarkably well on rainfall, and then swept upwards through fields that had once been pasture to the big house on the hill. Carmoyle sat in splendour and magnificence, a multicoloured mansion of pillars and arches, surrounded by the skeletons of trees. It was utterly out of sync with the landscape around it. Leah stopped and gazed, gobsmacked. She reminded herself that it was designed in the 1870s by men in top hats and high colours, whose wives had low expectations of comfort. Nobody in their right mind could have accused Carmoyle of cosiness. Ronan would have loved this house, she thought. I am so the wrong person for this job. As a Dubliner, she was attuned to the paired-back symmetry of Georgian buildings, but Ronan adored the Victorians to the extent that he almost wanted to be one. He loved their decorative extravagance and their complete denial of the relationship between architecture and place. It was the age of the machine, he told her. They thought that they could shape the world. The men thought that they could shape the world, Leah observed. The women were wearing corsets and struggling to breathe, and don't even get me started on the poor. Appealing to Ronan's social conscience was a waste of time, since he didn't really have one, but she'd never quite stop trying. And, while she was quietly horrified by this extravaganza, so ornate and out of place, she knew that her brother would have loved the sheer bravado of building a Venetian palace on a wet, windy Irish farm. Who else but the Victorians? said the imaginary Ronan into her ear. But if you could, why wouldn't you? I bet it's the only Logia in County Limerick. As country houses went, Carmoyle was not huge, two stories high and four bays wide, and built of rusticated stone. Its windows were set between marble pillars, supporting arches in alternating blocks of brown and white sandstone. They reminded Leah of raised eyebrows. The building looked surprised, and a little shocked by its own pretensions. Show off, Leah muttered under her breath. It's a complete anachronism to complain about the Victorian sense of display, the imaginary Ronan continued. They saw nothing wrong with showing off. But green and red marble pillars? Seriously? A string course ran around the house, below the first floor windows, and the arches of the windows were capped with a tan-coloured stone, giving a general impression of stripiness. The roof was also striped, in different shades of slate, and the eaves trimmed with cornicing so fancy that it looked as though the roof had been crocheted into place. It was flanked to the north by a slightly taller square building, which looked as though someone had started to build a tower and run out of money. Leah trudged up the drive. She imagined her great-great-grandmother, younger then than she was now, walking up the same winding avenue to the house on the hill, unaware that she would leave it in disgrace. How did you feel about that, Peggy Shine? The house faced bleakly east, fronted by a square and flat-roofed porch, with pillared arches under a fussy little balustrade. 
Beneath it was a large wooden door on which Leah pounded no avail. She walked around to the south side of the house, where a long line of marble columns, alternating green and red, supported a covered walkway, a logia ill-conceived for a climate of wind and rain. A low balustrade, identical to the one above the porch, ran the length of the roof. Despite herself, Leah counted the columns. There were sixteen of them. She peered through the windows and saw no sign of habitation within. Hello, she called, but no one answered. Her feet crunched on wet gravel and her bag tugged at her shoulder as she retraced her steps. Around the back of the house, she found an old farmyard with a carriage house, hayloft and stables, practical and plainly built. A black and white sheepdog ran barking from its kennel. Someone shouted a command from one of the sheds and it stopped instantly, dropping into a crouch. Then, at the approach of a burly man with a wheelbarrow, the dog rolled onto its back and wriggled. Don't mind him, said the man, extending a massive hand. John Reardon. He wore jeans and a check shirt and his grizzled hair stuck out in all directions from under a peaked cap. His teeth were black and incomplete. Hello, said Leah uncertainly. I'm Leah. Grand job, said John Reardon. Kit has the kettle on below. Give me a moment and I'll show you in. He seemed to take up more than the usual amount of space. John Reardon went back into the shed and Leah stood in the cobbled yard with the dog beside her. Its nose followed him like a compass needle. He returned without the wheelbarrow and let her into the house by a side door. The temperature inside the house was several degrees colder than it was outdoors. Leah stood on the threshold amid umbrellas, overcoats and Wellington boots and smelt the air. It was part of Ronan's method. A building will let you know what's going on with it he had told her. You just need to learn the language. Dry rot had its own peculiar smell, as did wet rot, woodworm, and the restless presence of a building's former occupants. Most of the time, Leah found that the language of buildings came naturally to her, but this one was baffling. She closed her eyes and smelt pervasive damp, with a musty bass note of mouse and a metallic tang that set her teeth on edge. Leah followed her host down a long dark corridor into the kitchen, where a turf fire smouldered ineffectually in the grate. John Reardon stirred it with a poker, raising a cloud of ash. Are you there, Kitty? The person who emerged from the pantry, large jug in both hands, was a young, dark, beautiful version of John Reardon. I wouldn't have thought those features would work on a girl, thought Leah, but they did. You could see the resemblance in the eyebrows and the cleft of the chin. Her dark brown hair was cut into a neat bob, and her face was neat too. Brown eyes, a wide mouth, and delicately flared nostrils. Her skin was pale to the point of translucency, with veins spreading on her forehead like the branches of a tree. Kit smiled in a way that made Leah's heart do a backflip. 
put the jug down on the table and proffered a small cold hand. Did you have any trouble finding us? Just the last bit, said Leah. I got lost after I died and the car went into the ditch. I think it's all right, but I couldn't get it out myself. Are you all right, though? I'm fine, said Leah, but her legs were shaking. Sit down there, said John Reardon, pulling out a chair. Don't mind the car. I'll get that out for you with the tractor. Is there tea in the pot? We'll be in a minute, said Kit cheerfully. She filled the electric kettle from the cast iron one hanging over the fire and inspected a tray of bread dough rising under a tea towel beside the range. The table was made from a massive hunk of pine, its surface scarred from centuries of use. Leah ran her hand across it and untold tales hummed beneath her fingertips. The whole kitchen was encrusted with layers of human life. It smelled of turf smoke, sage and carbolic soap. The windows were small, set deep into thick walls and did not offer much in the way of natural light. The low wood-panelled ceiling was painted a liverish brown, as was the dresser, whose slatted undercarriage had once accommodated hens. Its upper shelves were stacked with ancient crockery, jugs and cups dangling from their handles, and a procession of pewter tankards. There were armchairs on either side of the fireplace, patterned with cabbage roses and a standard lamp with a frilly shade. As she poured milk into a steaming mug of tea, Leah caught a faint and unfamiliar smell. She lifted the jug and sniffed. There were three brands of powdered milk in the shops, each with its own patented flavour, but this was like the milk that she remembered from childhood. That milk's not off, is it? asked Kit anxiously. No, said Leah, taking a scalding mouthful. It's delicious. I'd forgotten what milk was meant to taste like. I didn't think that anyone still had cows. The fields that she had seen on her long walk up to the house had been every bit as poisoned as the land around them. There was certainly no sign of cattle. John Reardon stirred sugar into his tea. The land was hard hit all right, this part of the country. There was an uncomfortable silence. Everyone traded food on the black market if they could afford it, but it wasn't something that you'd admit to either. Leah stretched her long legs under the table, encountering the sheepdog below. She felt gangly and unkempt. Her hair, having lost its restraining clip somewhere along the way, had erupted in a cloud of frizz. Leah did better with makeup. Without it, she tended to look, as Martha had affectionately explained, like a scarecrow on hunger strike. Kit wiped her flowery hands on her apron and hung it on the back of the door. Do you want to see your room? I've the bed aired for you in Scorpio, and there's loads of hot water if you want a bath. Kit wore a very small blue and white striped top under denim dungarees, cropped to mid-calf, and battered Germanic sandals. Leah followed her down the corridor, watching the swing of her hips. The corridor was dark, its flagstones worn by the passage of feet, and it left her totally unprepared for the grandeur of the gallery beyond. <laughs>